0: Good evening, everybody. My name is Stefan Molyneux. I'm the host of Free Domain, which is the largest and most popular philosophy show in the world. And I'm here with Dr. Ben Burgess. We've been having some flybys on social media over the past couple of months, I suppose. And Ben is a committed socialist, a full-on Marxist. I am not. And um, I've written a book called, of course, The Art of the Argument. And Ben, if you could introduce yourself just a smidge and tell people about your book and what it is that you do, that would be great.
1: Sure um so one thing that we have in common is we both wrote books with argument in the title uh mine was give them an argument logic for the left uh, from zero books um and i was also a contributor to a book called myth and mayhem about jordan peterson along with matt mcmanus who you've also had a conversation with conrad hamilton marion trejo and Slavoj zizek wrote the introduction um and i do a regular weekly segment uh, the Michael Brooks Show uh, called uh, The Debunk, um, and uh, and I've got a, uh, a Patreon, that's patreon.com slash Ben Burgess. Maybe we can get into whether that's hypocritical since I'm a socialist, and, uh, and then I think that's probably about enough about me. Let's get started.
0: Okay, so um, we're going to actually have a little bit of a more formal debate than I have with uh, some of the other debating partners that I've worked with. So we're going to do seven and a half minutes, seven and a half minutes uh, opening statements, and then seven and a half minutes, seven and a half minutes rebuttal. And um, we actually did a twerking competition just to start. I, of course, won. Uh, because of my Irish heritage, it gets my hips moving. And so I'm going to start, and then Ben's going to have yeah. the last word. So um, the moderator is going to be taking care of this in a, a chat window, which we have that's uh, just for Ben and myself. Let me just make sure I navigate to that so I can see it. But, okay, so I'm going to uh, start here and make sure I've got my own timer here as well to make sure I, I don't go over and cheat, as, uh, as you know, apparently capitalists are want to do. So I'm going to start by saying... Let's start with definitions. You know, I believe that most conflicts can be resolved through clear definitions. If you have clear enough definitions, you can usually agree. Sane, sensible people can usually agree on a lot more. So definitions for me are very, very key. So capitalism, what do I mean by capitalism? Well, I want to differentiate it from the current godforsaken mess that we have at the moment, sometimes called crony capitalism, more technically called fascism, which is public funding with private profits. It's a a godforsaken mess that has created untold suffering to millions or tens of millions around the world. It's a debt-based system where the government controls the currency, the interest rates, the education, the health care, the old age pensions, the you name it. Uh, and it is a massively corrupt. And you've got uh, people buying congressmen and congresswomen left, right and center for preferential treatments for large companies at the expense of small uh, companies and in particular workers. You have a truly nightmare scenario where people can hoover money up out of the corporate legal fictions called corporations. And then if the corporations go tits up, well, they get to walk away with all their millions and nobody can touch them through the corporate shield. The entire corporate system is set up to protect the ruling classes, both in terms of military and in terms of finance and in terms of political power. So I'm not talking about what we have going on in the world right now. What I'm talking about when I talk about capitalism, is I'm talking about a system that has been dreamed of by human beings for thousands of years. And what I mean by that is a system which brings true and full legal and political equality to each and every human being. See, I'm of the opinion, and I think it's more than an opinion, I think most people accept this, that human beings cannot in any way, shape, or form handle power. Power is very bad for us. You know, when I was a kid, we had to put coins in the heating device, and sometimes we had to put actual pennies uh, in the fuse box because we, we, you know, it was a huge fire hazard and so on. But human beings can't handle huge voltages of power, political power, any more than the pennies when I was a kid could handle electrical power. They regularly melted and sort of dripped out. Human beings get overwhelmed and blown out and corrupted by power, as the old saying goes. Power tends to corrupt. Absolute power tends to corrupt. Absolutely. So the whole question of human society, which is really, really important now, we're seeing the corruption of the FISA courts and the Patriot Act and the, the FBI and so on. And I know Ben has had his opposition to the Patriot Act, just as I have. See, reasonable people can find common ground. Human beings cannot handle political power. And the only way to solve the problem of political power is the same way that we solve the problem of slavery. Eliminate it! Eliminate it top to bottom, back to front, A to Z, zero to infinity. You must eliminate the state in order for human beings to have any capacity for equality and security and continuity in the institutions of civilizations that we all rely on to survive. And in this, I actually meet Marx's dream at its end rather than at its beginning or at its middle. Because Marx, of course, dreamt of and advocated for, though never really explicated how you were going to get there, a stateless society. The government is a monstrous, power-hungry, lusty, evil violation of the non-aggression principle, and we have inherited it just as humanity had inherited slavery from prior civilizations. We've inherited it, and it just seems to make sense. But just as the ending of slavery was the extension of self-ownership to all human beings, the ending of the state is the extension of the non-aggression principle to all human beings. Now, we know from things like physics, from things like biology and so on, that when you extend principles that are universal to their true level of universality and absolutism, you get incredibly wonderful power over the universe. If you hold the speed of light is constant, you gain the awesome power and terror of nuclear power. Even if you just say that everything in the universe is subject to gravity and everything falls, you get an accurate model of the sun-centered solar system and you understand the universe probably for the first time. When you take our immediate experience, that everything kind of falls. If you take our immediate moral experience, that using violence to solve social problems is the greatest moral stain on humanity. If you use our personal moral experiences, all the moral lessons that we learn in kindergarten, don't hit, don't punch, don't steal, don't lie. And you simply say, we're going to take these moral absolutes that were given as children— that we all accept in our personal lives, and we're going to extend them everywhere, across society, across the world, across time. Well, a consistent application of the nonviolence principle. And by that, I exclude self-defense. So, you know, those of you who hear someone breaking into your house right now, please stop listening to this and go and deal with it. You have full permission to use force in self-defense. But if we take this non-aggression principle, this respect for property that we're all taught, as children, and we extend it to society as a whole, we will gain the third great revolution in the history of mankind. The first was really just coming out of the swamps and coming down from the trees and having first basic human society, uh, basic farming, basic property rights, the 10,000 year ago explosion of calories that allowed us to develop a civilization. The second was the end of slavery from, I mean, however you want to count it, 18th century, 19th century, and so on. The end of slavery was the birth of the modern world. That's the second one. The third one is the end of the state. So first you end rank ape-like tribalism. Second, you end slavery. Third, you end the state. Now once we achieve that, well, we know if you look at the continuity of economic productivity throughout most of human history, it's, it's a flat line. Like it's such a flat line, it sort of mimics Jeffrey Epstein's EKG these days, right? But then when you eliminate slavery... And you have private property and you have free trade, free markets. You get this massive eruption in productivity that is continuing with a certain amount of staggering at the moment to this very day. We will gain an equivalent burst in productivity, improvement in productivity when we take our moral lessons and truly universalize them. And we don't have what oligarchs have always had throughout human history, which is rules for thee, but not for me. And I consider that the worst hypocrisy as a moral theorist, which is, Well, you know, the Federal Reserve can create money out of nothing, and that's called sound economic policy. But if you try and create money out of nothing, well, my friend, you're a counterfeiter, and you're going to jail. And you and I can't use force to redistribute income. That's called theft, organized crime. But the government can, and that's called virtue. So what if we simply eliminate all of the hypocrisies, all of the contradictions in our absolute moral rules, our general moral rules, and we live out the dream of kindergarten. I know it sounds like an odd way to put it, but what if we simply said, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not rape, thou shalt not assault? What if we simply take that and make that our universal standard for humankind? Well, I believe that morality, like physics, only gains its true power when it is truly universalized, and for that, we must negotiate with each other, we must accept the reality of human evil and human corruption through power and eliminate the state as the great temptation to corrupt human beings and undo civilization. Because what is civilization? Civilization is the commitment to use reason rather than force. And the state as an agency of force is that which holds us back and drags us down to the apes. And that is my introduction.
1: All right. So uh, Stefan started with the definition of capitalism and I think it's important to at least quickly touch on that issue. So capitalism is used historically by most people uh, to mean a, a system under which uh, there's a division between private owners who buy and sell the means of production, not the human means of production, but the uh, but uh, the tools, uh, the space, you know, et cetera, uh, and people who work for a living. Uh, that's uh, so the sort of really aristocratic ruling class that you had under feudalism. Uh, is replaced by a ruling class of private capitalists. Now, that contrasts to what somebody like me wants, which is a system where uh, the major means of production, at least, are in the hands of either the people who work at a firm uh, or the larger community through mechanisms like nationalization, municipalization, or uh, businesses being reorganized or started as workers' cooperatives. now I'm perfectly happy to talk either way, right? If if you want to use the word capitalism to mean uh, anarchist libertarianism, right? You know that uh, that free market definition. Um, then you know then we can you know we can have the discussion both both directions. I don't want to fight too much about words. I don't think that's the uh, that's the main thing as long as we're all clear about using them. So the main um, I heard really two. Two reasons there, right? To um, to support uh, capitalism in the second sense, and really that's also going to apply to capitalism in the first sense, because even though I would use that term, unlike Stefan, to apply to societies uh, where you do have a state, right? Every existing capitalist society has had one. Um, but really, I think the issue in dispute is whether you can move from the sort of society that we've got as far as the foundations of uh, the economic system to the sort I'd want uh, in ways that violate uh, Stefan's conception of non-aggression and free markets. Uh, because I understand that from his perspective, he might say, hey, if it just turned out to be the case that you know through the operations of the free market, we just ended up in a situation. It just arose within free market transactions where everything was owned uh, by communes, worker co-ops, then that would, I'm sure, be fine with him. Uh, but the real issue is whether we can uh, move towards that goal, either in in short-term ways with reforms to the existing system to uh, make things fairer and more egalitarian, or in the long term by making those kinds of more radical structural changes that I'm talking about, in ways that would violate uh, the non-aggression principle as he understands it. So. Uh, that, you know, that because I think that's really, that's really the issue, right? We heard only, you know, a little bit, um, and I know this is an opening statement, not a rebuttal, but just to get the issues out here, right? We heard a little bit about how the transition from feudalism to capitalism uh, was, was a boon to humanity, and that's certainly true, right? Nobody's going to deny that. The real issue is whether we would be better off with socialism in that democratic sense that I advocate, uh, or we are sticking with capitalism. And then the real argument is going to be about whether making those sorts of changes, right? If we, for example, to pick what I think is a really obvious example of an industry that would be uh, usefully socialized, the uh, pharmaceutical industry, right? We're all suffering right now from the fact that that's in private hands uh, because there's a reason why after SARS and MERS there wasn't massive research into dealing with coronaviruses. And that's because there just wasn't enough money in that line of research, right? If a nationalization could uh, limit it from, you know, those constraints and have it be dictated by the priorities of medical experts uh, rather, than, uh, rather than letting the market ships fall wherever they may. So would doing that violate freedom? That's the real issue. And the reason I don't think so uh, is one, I don't think that trying to see the uh, non-aggression principle as libertarians understand it as the foundation of human freedom or the kind of human freedom most most worth caring about, I think uh, is a mistake. I think the kind of freedom most worth caring about isn't freedom of coercion, although coercion is certainly all else being equal bad, right? You know that you know you need a good reason to justify it. It's freedom from domination, and one reason to think that this is more a more fundamental kind of freedom has to do with one of Stefan's favorite go-to examples, which we just heard, is about slavery. So is a slave who's whipped all the time freer than one who's almost never whipped? Well, I don't think so. Uh, they might be luckier, but I don't think they're freer, right? Because the fundamental issue is about domination, uh, not coercion, right? The, uh, the coercion in that case is a symptom, and I think people are less vulnerable to domination if uh, they have relatively equal power. I absolutely agree that power corrupts, uh, which is why you need various uh, democratic institutions and constitutional constraints on what a government can do, even under socialism, absolutely. I'm a democratic socialist. It's also the case, of course, that purely economic power corrupts, uh, and that without things... You know, just just thinking not even about the contrast between anarcho-capitalism uh, and democratic socialism, but even between anarcho-capitalism and the status quo, uh, if we didn't have things uh, like workplace safety laws, sexual harassment laws, uh, minimum wage laws, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, uh, then people are far... Um, Far more vulnerable to various forms of problematic domination uh, by by others. That a unrestricted free market is a situation in which uh, people have their own little mini domains where they can treat the people under them in those domains like spiders trapped in a jar. Uh, and so our best our best bet for uh, avoiding corruption of power isn't isn't trusting in people to be good. It's having institutions. Uh, that make it harder to for people to abuse them each other by giving them less power over each other, which I think includes democracy in the workplace.
0: Okay, well, I'm going to just we've spread a lot of information out uh, over a wide area. I'm just going to pick out uh, a couple of things. So with regards to what nationalizing the pharmaceutical industry, well, the pharmaceutical industry has been entirely corrupted by state power. So this is one of the things that's kind of typical from a leftist perspective is government power creates all of these distortions and problems and weird incentives and odd little n-dimensional profit pockets that that then they say, aha, you see, the free market isn't working. We just have to take it over completely, which is, you know, like beating a guy to death and saying, well, now we have to put him out of his misery because, you know, <laughs> he's not going to get any better. So with pharmaceuticals, uh, what's happened? Well, of course, the government pays for a lot of pharmaceuticals, which means for a massive over-prescription situation. The government enforces intellectual property laws. Uh, The government uh, creates massive barriers to innovation in that it takes about a billion dollars and 10 years to get a drug to market, which means that there's almost no incentive to go for smaller markets. The government, because 800 babies got uh, deformed during the thalidomide, scared when this was a a medicine that uh, women took to deal with morning sickness in the 1960s, it produced birth defects. And as a result of that, the FDA was brought into power. Its power was extended to the point now where about 5 million americans have been killed because the fda has kept off the market drugs which are perfectly legal and safe in europe and in other places but of course they have been corrupted by power the pharmaceutical industry being paid by the state being protected by the state being fostered by the state being regulated by the state it's turned into a massive monstrous horrifying problem so then saying well the solution you see is to nationalize it it's like well no it's already gone rancid from violations of the non-aggression principle, and therefore more violations of the non-aggression principle is simply going to make it worse. Now, when you bring up something like coronavirus, well, As a Marxist, of course, you're perfectly aware that uh, China was founded as a communist country. Uh, Of course, it has killed tens and tens and tens of millions of its own citizens. And of course, it has helped facilitate the spread of coronavirus around the world. So the idea that we need communism to save us from the virus spread by communism is just another one of these brain bending Mobius strip mind fracks that I don't even know how to (laughs) point out other than to point it out. Now, as far as a slave beaten less uh, is uh, subject to less coercion, well, no, because slavery itself is a coercive institution. Slavery is a state program in that when slaves exist, they exist in a state of enslavement because the government is willing to enforce slave contracts and will go and round up slaves who escape and bring them back on the public purse. And in fact, I mean, one of the reasons why the average working class in the South in America hated slavery was A, because it drove down the wages and it was really hard to compete, and B, because they were actually kind of forced to go on these slave patrols and they had to go and catch slaves and it was just a horrible mess. Now, of course, it helped out the rich, it helped out uh, the the powerful, it helped out the elites, but it was destructive, of course, to the local population, particularly the working classes. So a slave who's beaten less, yeah, sure, they're lucky. You know, it's like if you happen to get thrown into a Soviet gulag under Stalin and you get beaten less, the issue is that you're in a gulag, not how much you're beaten. It certainly matters to your quality of experience how much you're beaten, but it doesn't matter as to the moral nature of the situation. So with regards to what we need, the government, you see, to handle things like minimum wage laws and health and safety laws and things like that, Well, no, because these it's called regulatory capture, right? So what happens is when the government gets a certain amount of power, which it always does, what happens is the existing corporations move in to exploit that power for their own benefit at the expense of others. You can see this in a micro example with the sugar industry in that the sugar industry keeps these massive tariffs uh, going on to keep sugar from, say, Jamaica or other places out of America so they can charge more for sugar. And what does that mean? Well, it means that, sugar becomes so expensive that you get godforsaken Satan sweat like fructose glucose being used and sucralose and aspartame being used instead and that's really really bad for people's health so it is just a, a giant mess minimum wage laws are there to cover up how absolutely shitty government schools are and how little they prepare people to be it even remotely productive in a free market situation. In government schools, you know, they'll teach you how to masturbate. When you're five years old, they'll teach you about 57 genders, but they won't teach you how to raise money, how to start a business, how to compete. Uh, with with the uh, existing business structures that's out there. So, of course, people graduate barely able to spell their own names because they've been chewed up and spit out with their brains hanging out between their asses. And then you say, well, you see, we have to have minimum wage laws because, well, people just aren't that productive. Same thing with health and safety laws. The way that you deal with health and safety is you make the owners of the corporations personally liable for deaths that occur through carelessness or lack of safety uh, procedures in their business so they lose their goddamn houses. Right now, you see a corporation, the the executives all get to walk free and keep all of their ill-gotten gains a lot of times, whereas, you know, in a free society, I'd never want to do business with somebody whose executives couldn't lose their homes for bad behavior. As far as health and safety laws have gone, and I'll just end up with this point, what's happened? How safe are Americans? Well, what's happened is the health and safety laws have become so Byzantine and so complicated, which is partly the politicians. And it's also partly, of course, the fact that existing businesses who have big, big ass legal departments really want hyper complicated regulations because it's a barrier to entry for any small company that wants to compete with them. But what's happened is it's become so impossible to do business as a manufacturing concern in America that all of the manufacturing jobs have headed overseas. And what does that mean? Depression, anxiety, suicide, drug addiction, the splintering of families to the point now where opioid addiction, which largely centers around the lower middle class that used to have jobs in manufacturing, now you've got an opioid addiction crisis in America that kills more Americans every year than died in the entire course of fighting communism in Vietnam. And so it really hasn't turned out to be very health and safety focused to drive all of the manufacturing overseas and now have not just America's goods that are dependent upon the benevolence of a pretty psychotic communist regime in China, but also basic medical care, basic medicines have now been outsourced to the very source of the coronavirus and the regime that helped spread it around the world in strict defiance of the regulations that they had signed. So yeah, regulations are just a way of covering up government incompetence and uh, government bureaucracy and the government destruction of human capital. And so it's the old thing, uh, more government is always offered as the solution to prior government screw-ups.
1: All right, so uh, I do I do like the comparison between somebody being uh, beaten badly, and then you say, oh, he's been beaten so badly, we should just put him out of his misery. I But I think what that would better apply to would be the argument uh, that we just heard uh, that because regulatory capture is a problem, Right? again, you know, it's a problem that the sharp edges of regulation are blunted by the political influence of big business, therefore we should just put regulation out of its misery and go all the way to not having any of these regulations at all, hoping that uh, people, perhaps uh, victims of everything from um, you know, pollution to, uh, to unsafe workplaces, et cetera will just win court battles with uh, far wealthier parties uh, in courts that, as I understand it, under anarcho-capitalism, both parties would have to agree to, about which I say good luck with that. Uh, As to the idea that uh, government involvement in pharmaceuticals uh, is somehow responsible for uh, the pharmaceutical companies being more interested in short-term profit, uh, than in planning for things that should have been obviously coming around the pike uh, when we uh, we saw uh, Mars, Sir, yeah, SARS and MERS happening. Um, I don't really get how that case is supposed to go. Maybe Stefan can talk more about this later, uh, but it, uh, it, it does, there's no obvious uh, connection there. Uh, now, uh, about uh, coronavirus. Uh, apparently, uh, starting uh, starting in China, I'm not quite sure what the relevance of that is to anything. Right? So, uh, so my position, as, as stated at the beginning, uh, is democratic socialism. I like democracy. I like it so much that I want to socialize the major means of production and extend democracy into the workplace. Uh, China uh, was uh, was founded as something that, and again, as with earlier, I'm not too interested in arguing about semantics. Uh, if you want to call it a radically different form of socialism that I advocate, I'm happy to talk like that. If you want to say it's not socialism at all, because socialism would be a classless society and that's a society with a bureaucratic ruling class, I'm happy to talk that way. But certainly nothing that even the most casual observer can mistake for socialist democracy, uh, and they've since then, they've kept the elements that I would object to, the lack of political democracy, uh, and they've extended it, and they've then eliminated uh, the, um, the role of, uh, of nationalized industry in the economy. Not entirely, but at this point, China is so capitalist, in my preferred sense of that word, I know not Stefan's, that, uh, that American companies... Uh, Will move there in order to take advantage of uh, the poverty wages. That uh, it's so uh, it's so, so capitalist at this point that um, that actually uh, there are European countries that have a higher percentage of nationalized industry in their economy uh, than uh, than China does. Uh, and when he says, oh. Uh, when I'm suggesting that one of the lessons of the coronavirus is would we'll be good to nationalize the pharmaceutical industry, or I could add, follow the example of Spain, uh, and nationalize our private hospitals. Uh, they did that in response to, uh, to the pandemic. He said, oh, you're suggesting communism to save us uh, from, uh, from communism. Well, there's a pretty obvious equivocation there. There's a term being used to mean two different things in two different parts of the argument. In one part, communism means anything other than capitalism, right? So it includes the kind of socialist democracy that I advocate, and in the other part of the argument, uh, it means um, this sort of system they have in China. Now, whether or not you want to say that both of those are forms of socialism—you know, just radically different forms or whatever—is not really that interesting to me. Although I have a hard time seeing how you could call what exists in China today any form of socialism. Uh, Again, I don't want to argue too much about uh, about labels, uh, but that, you know, you might as well say when Stefan proposes that we solve all the problems of the kind of capitalist society we've got right now by moving towards really free markets, and anarcho-capitalism, that he's suggesting capitalism to save us from capitalism. As to the idea that slavery was super statist because governments enforced slave contracts and uh, governments uh did a lot of tracking down of escaped slaves although uh slave owners acting privately also did a lot of that uh you notice that you can make a structurally identical argument that any sort of property uh is uh, is is statist because uh government enforces uh the economic contracts and government will enforce the property claims by trying to stop you from taking away any of the property it's the same argument Uh, His claim that beating slaves doesn't subject them to more coercion seems to be a very odd fit uh, with his claim that, um, well, let me give you a couple of quick examples of why I think this is an odd fit with some of his other views. When someone like me says that we should raise the minimum wage to $15 or $20 an hour uh, would, uh, would Stefan say well that's no that's no worse in terms of the NAP we can argue about consequences but no worse in terms of the NAP because as long as you're subject to the government setting a minimum wage it doesn't really matter what it's set at that would be the equivalent of his response to the slave whipping case uh, or uh, when uh, when I say when when if I say oh we should raise taxes to pay for some social program is Stefan likely to say that um, that well, raising taxes is no more of an NAP violation because uh, the, the NAP violation, the coercion, is having taxes at all, not what the tax level is. I don't think so either. Finally, as far as the NAP itself, uh, this deserves more time than I have remaining, so I hope we can get into it more later. Uh, but I think that once you really start to dig in to, to what it really means to say that you can't initiate force, where force actually means two things. One is literal force against people. One is any sort of violation of property rights, even nonviolent ones. Um, Well, the real question is what property rights? What counts as legitimate property, which is ultimately gonna reduce to the question of what's your conception of distributive justice? Any, Any distribution of property has to be enforced. Um, so I think ultimately again, we can get into this later uh but I think the n a p is going to be pretty uninformative uh as far as any kind of substantive moral or political conclusion
0: the n a p is going to be pretty uninformative that, that's your that's your syllogism that's your rebuttal just ejecting a bunch of fog like a squid Uh, being grabbed by a scuba diver? Like, what does that mean? I don't even know how to parse that.
1: Well, okay, I actually explained how to parse it, but I'm happy to explain it again. Please do, yeah. (laughs) So, uh, the, uh, the NAP, right, says you can't initiate force against people and you can't violate their property rights. So the question is, what property rights are we talking about? Now, obviously, it can't just be that anything somebody happens to currently be in possession of, they have a right to stay in possession of. I know you know this, but just to spell it out really quickly for anybody who's curious about what I mean, one reason why no libertarian is really going to say that is if you start thinking about really simple examples. Stefan steals my television. He gives it to his friend Dave. I go over to Dave's house to recover it, right? I don't ask him. I just take it, right? I am taking something he is currently in possession of. No libertarian would say I'm violating the NAP. Why? Well, if you read people like Robert Nozick or Murray Rothbard, what they'll talk about a lot is entitlement, right? What property you're entitled to, not what you currently happen to possess. And then, um, so really the question, what the NAP tells you about property, right? Because it's not a question of violence versus nonviolence, right? Men with guns might ultimately enforce taxation even though in the real world nobody's gonna get shot for uh, not paying their taxes but men with guns in precisely the same sense even if nobody's shooting trespassers men with guns are enforcing property claims the real question is not do you have some sort of uh potentially forceful enforcement or not the question is which property claims should you enforce and that's not going to be about the nap pro or con that's going to be about what your theory is of who has a moral right to what property.
0: So you think that guns are not used to enforce state laws?
1: Uh, I actually said the opposite. I said that, you know, that ultimately, sure, right, that they have that it's backed up by an implicit threat of force. But you could say the same thing about property in general, right? A no trespassing sign.
0: Oh, come on, Ben, come on. Don't, no! Uh, oh, come on! I, I know. Oh, come on! It's not an argument, but this is so crazy! Come on! No, hang on, hang on, hang on a sec! Hang on a sec! That's that's like saying
1: both implicit threats of force. Okay, okay. Let's
0: let, let's let's clarify some of this property stuff because you seem to be
1: one is a lot more likely to be backed up by the th- by actual lethal violence in the real world. There are a lot more people who are shot. Uh, for violating somebody's property rights uh, by a property owner with a gun uh, uh, than there are who are executed or somehow shot in the course of a standoff with the police because they didn't pay their taxes.
0: Okay, but that's like saying that slavery isn't slavery because very few slaves get killed trying to escape. I mean, it's the implicit threat that that drives the whole system. So saying that you can't see the violence that is inherent in the system, to quote the old Monty Python line, just it's it's a willful blindness on your part. And equate, hang on, let me let me finish, let me let me make a point, then you can rebut. Right, I, I gave you a lot of space to make your point. All right. A woman's vagina. We haven't talked enough about women's vaginas yet, all right, which is generally where most debates should center around, right? Hang on. So a woman who is resisting a rapist, right? So she owns her body. She owns her body. She has sovereign autonomy over her own body, and she has the right to deny entry of a male penis to her vagina, right? I I think we would both accept that rape is an evil action and women have the right of self-defense against rape. So if you're going to say that defense of property is the same as the initiation of the use of force, you're creating a moral equivalence between a woman fighting for her life to not get raped and the rapist who's holding a knife to her throat. She has the right to protect her property called her body. And he, by initiating violence against her and threatening to rape her, is the evildoer, and she has the right of self-defense. You can't say that the protection of property is exactly the same as the violation of property, because then you're logically equating the rape victim with the rapist.
1: All right. Part of what you said is true, so let's start with that. Okay, just make
0: the argument. Don't say what's true and what's false. That's called, you know, that's setting up the whole frame there. Just make the argument.
1: So um, so the part that you got right, right, is, of course, rape is bad. We all have a right to bodily autonomy. I don't think it's very useful or conceptually precise uh, to think of the right to bodily autonomy as a property right. But, you know, if you want to say that's property, fine, whatever. I'm not going to fight about that. The uh, the But where theories of distributive justice disagree is not going to be about whether we have a right to bodily autonomy it's going to be about what if you want to call bodily autonomy self-ownership like libertarians do i think that's confused but if you do uh then it's about you know ownership of external goods that's where the different theories are going to have different conclusions uh the point you know what i said was not that protecting property is self-initiation of force what i said is whether any given use of force, whether to enforce taxes, whether to enforce a no trespass sign, whatever, whether any given use of force depends on it.
0: Oh, come on. you
1: yep. disagreement the real debate is going to be about what property do we have a right to what you know under what circumstances does someone have a just right uh, to uh, to, to, uh, to some piece of external property? We all agree that uh, we can you know that that we should control our bodies. The question is which external possessions do people have a right to control? Uh, A lot of libertarians will say, well, as long as your possessions can be traced back by some chain of free market transactions, no force and fraud to a just act of original transition, uh, uh, original acquisition, uh, as Nozick's phrase, then then you have a right to it. You ask, what counts as a just act of original acquisition? That gets a lot more, more complicated and a lot
0: less obvious. No, but it's not that complicated. I mean, you have in your very book. Ben, which by the way, you charge 20 bucks for a 120 page book, but hey, you know, whatever the market will bear, you have a statement of property rights right there in your book. You've got a copyright. You say no one is allowed to to copy the book or to use anything other than a brief excerpt in a critical uh, essay or a review and so on. So you have a very, very clear definition of property rights that you use in your book. When you did uh, review my book, The Art of the Argument, you accepted that it was my book that I had written, that I had produced it, and you referred it to as exclusively mine. So, you know, all of this fiffaf faff around how complicated property rights are goes in direct opposition to the way that you actually live, the statements of ownership that you've put over your own books. I mean, I hand out my books for free, but you charge uh, your books because I guess you want to make a profit as a good Marxist. But... It's all so strange to me that people use property rights. You're using exclusive use over your computer, over your webcam, over your glasses, your jacket, your shirt. I don't know if you're wearing pants or not, but if you are, then you So the way that you live your life is with a perfect and clear understanding of property rights. But then when people start talking about taxation, it suddenly gets really complicated. And who can figure out who owns what? And it's like, well, how do you get... If you don't know who owns what, how the hell are you charging 20 bucks and making money off a book you wrote? Because you can't figure out who owns it anything right so you're
1: equivocating uh, being about who owns what right so does who owns what means who is in possession of something or even who has a legal right under the current system to be in possession of something or does it mean who has a moral right to be in possession of something now uh i was pretty sure we were going to get the hypocrisy charge at some point Uh, I have noticed that when you debate socialists, uh, that you always spend a lot of time talking.
0: Okay, can you just make the argument? I'm sorry uh, to interrupt, but all uh, of this, uh, our time is limited. Just make the argument, please.
1: please. I've let you talk for quite a long time. Right. So uh, so because you always do this, it's worth pointing out a couple things about this. One, even if it were true, which it's not, that something about, you know, selling books or whatever uh, is hypocritical. Uh, then this would be sublimely irrelevant to whether I'm right or wrong about any of the things that we're arguing about. If somebody's ideas are internally inconsistent, then that's relevant because it shows that they must be wrong about one half or the other. If somebody's ideas are actually inconsistent with their behavior, that might just show that they're you know that might just show personal weakness. Now. Are my ideas actually inconsistent with my my behavior? Well, no, not really, uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, uh, you'll notice that nothing I have said uh, advocates the abolition of all acts of buying and selling, that no one should ever uh, buy or sell anything. Uh, in fact, I haven't even advocated the abolition of uh, intellectual property, which you seem to sometimes, so if that's the, uh, you know, if that's the case, then if you sell anything, right? That uh, then if we're going to play that game, right, you know, that, uh, that you are charging anything for anything that you ever do, uh, that's, uh, that's intellectual property, that might be hypocritical. Uh, but secondly, uh, in order to be hypocritical, I would have to be doing something that I advocate that others don't do. Uh, and of course, as a leftist, as a socialist, I am not advocating that we try to bring about social change through individuals changing their individual behavior. I advocate institutional and structural solutions. So if a libertarian or conservative who thinks that the solution to people who can't get life-saving operations unless they can afford it is private charity, and you don't give money to private charity, that might be hypocritical. It's certainly not hypocritical for a socialist not to. It might be hypocritical for a socialist to evade paying taxes to pay for national health care, uh, but it's uh, but also because I know that uh, you're very fond so of, of doing this. It's probably going to come up at some point of asking people if they've. Uh, ever run a business which always strikes me as kind of funny because you criticize government bureaucrats even though you oh, no. no hang
0: on let, let me debate for myself I don't, don't debate on my behalf Ben I mean let me debate and ask the questions myself I mean then I might as well just go and and uh, take a shit and come back later right so just you know just debate for you
1: publishing company charges for the book Right, that the uh, that the author makes a contract with the publishing company for how much they're going to pay him. No, but
0: you can give the book away for free. When they
1: pay for the books is an entirely separate.
0: Okay, okay, all right, okay. So here's the thing, right? So this is from 2011, right? Taxpayer subsidies that cover the operating costs of most colleges and universities ranges from about eight thousand dollars to more than one hundred thousand dollars for each bachelor's degree awarded. Most public institutions averaging more than $60,000 per degree. So you have a PhD, which is probably about nine years worth of this. So you've taken about $100,000 at a bare minimum from the working class. Now, they don't get to choose that, right, because they have to pay the taxes that go towards your education, right? So the working class, you're very much about, well, let's not exploit the working classes, but you have forced through the power of the state, the working classes to support your education while you're going through and getting your PhD. And in return, what do you do? Well, you do a couple of things. The first thing is you write philosophical papers that are completely incomprehensible to the layperson. So that seems like not a very good return and care for the actual working classes that have been forced to subsidize your education. And the second thing you do after taking at least $100,000 through force from the working classes is you charge 20 bucks. You don't even give them the book for free. And, you know, you could you could ask for donations and so on. So this idea, well, I'm helpless as to how I charge for my book. That's nonsense. I hand out my books for free. Because I actually, I did take money from the working classes, although I come from the working class. That's neither here nor there. I did take money from the working classes, and I consider that I really should use the education that was provided by the working classes to actually go out and really help with the working classes. And I don't find any of your lectures online. Maybe they are. Uh, I find that you hide out in a university protected by the state, which takes money from the working classes so that you can educate other people who are going to take money from the working classes so that you can all hand out these polysyllabic mishmash word salad papers that do absolutely nothing to benefit the working classes. So, yeah, if you're going to talk about your care and concern for the working classes and your absolute horror at exploiting the working classes, I'm just going to look up and say you're actually doing a whole lot worse than somebody who's actually providing a job for people.
1: Okay, Stephen. Uh, look, let's uh, let's let's take the slew of absurd claims just made and try to take them one yeah, at a framing time. Framing again? Uh, yeah, I am going to. Uh, you've done quite a bit of framing yourself. So let's talk about this. First of all, if you can't find my lectures online, you're not working you're looking very hard uh, because there are dozens. Uh, there's uh, look at the Zero Books YouTube channel. No, 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 uh, no.
0: Your university lectures, not stuff you've well, done in podcasts. I,
1: uh, my, uh, my university uh, lectures, well, these days, some of you know, these days those are online too. But, um, but look, um, I, but I have, Sorry,
0: your university uh, lectures are not I, online, is that right?
1: Uh, well, I have actually put some uh, YouTube lectures online. Uh, I also prefer class discussion uh, rather than me just lecturing at people all the time. But also, what any of this has to do with anything is beyond me. Uh, It's obviously irrelevant to whether I'm right or wrong about any of the issues that we're talking about for reasons that have already been explained, but just to dispense with a lot of the false things that you just said. Uh, I did not say, oh, it's not true, I don't control the price of the book, uh, because I could give it away for free. First of all, I give away a tremendous amount of writing for free. Uh, If you did any kind of Google search you know that. Secondly, I've sent many people who hope they couldn't afford it. Free PDFs of the book. I know my editor and publisher have done the same thing. Uh, third, uh, it's it's not hypocritical to uh, to take in however indirect and, and horrible a system uh, that you know that it might be uh, money for uh, for education uh, because I don't object to taxation to pay for education. In fact, I do exactly the opposite. I want a whole lot more of it. Uh, You know, I support uh, Bernie Sanders' proposal to do what's worked well elsewhere uh, and have taxpayer-funded free public education. It's one of the public goods that I think should be supported uh, by taxation. Now, I know you don't want any public goods to be supported by taxation, yet I'm not going to accuse you of being a hypocrite for driving on roads built with taxation or walking on (laughs) sidewalks built with taxation, or even the fact I believe we're in Toronto, last I knew. Uh, that uh, that I'm pretty sure uh, that if you got COVID-19 tomorrow, you would be fast on your way to a hospital uh, where your medical care would be paid for by taxation. Maybe you would insist on principle on waiting until you got to the United States first, but I kind of doubt it. And none of this is relevant. Now we've got less than 15 minutes remaining, but I would strongly suggest. Well, yes, no, I'd
0: like to respond to at least the no, healthcare no, part.
1: About hypocrisy that have nothing to do with the subject, that we actually talk about substantive issues, like, for example, the obvious contradiction between your professed libertarianism uh, and the kinds of arguments that you use for immigration restrictions.
0: Well, we did immigration last time. It would be kind of boring to retread it. So, with regards to something like healthcare or using the roads or using the sidewalks and so on, Look, come on, Ben, you understand that if somebody is imprisoned, you don't blame them for eating prison food. Like if someone is unjustly imprisoned, you don't blame them for going to the prison doctor when they're sick. When coercion has removed free choice from the marketplace, you do have to make do with what you've got. And by the by... The fucking Canadian healthcare system almost killed me by misdiagnosing me for a year and allowing a lump that was not cancerous to develop into cancer, at which point I had to fly to the United States for life-saving surgery that was going to be delayed by another couple of months up here in Canada. So, you know, I'm sorry for being a little pissed off here, but when people talk to me about how hypocritical it is for me to try and use the Canadian healthcare system when it is specifically denied to me to use a voluntary market healthcare system without flying to the States, pisses me off a little bit. So don't blame me for the fact that the government is not allowing me to have a private free market healthcare solutions or roads or anything like that. We all have to make do with the system that we're in. But where there are alternatives, where there are options, you should avail yourself. And I have to go to a doctor in Canada. I'm not allowed to have a private doctor. You don't have to charge 20 bucks for a 100-page book when you've already been paid by the working classes for your education, and you should give something back.
1: Well, first of all, I give back for free all the time. Secondly. Um, I think that uh, I think that if you look at the results of Canadian versus U.S. healthcare, uh, they they speak for themselves. Uh, there's a reason that life expectancy is higher uh, and infant mortality uh, is lower in Canada versus the United States. The idea that a misdiagnosis uh, is the result of who pays the bills uh, for the healthcare system rather than a doctor making a mistake uh, seems obvious. Well, not
0: just one, not just one. More,
1: okay several doctors making a mistake. Doctors make mistakes in every healthcare system. The question is which which system overall delivers better results uh, and causes more satisfaction. And I think it's pretty self-evident that there's a reason that in Canada, even the conservative party doesn't run on a platform of let's abolish uh, Canadian Medicare because they know they'd never win another election uh, well, that's an they, argument that's from popularity. Hang on, that's Maybe. an
0: argument from popularity, which you specifically well, dismiss in your argument
1: book. Argument from popularity, the argument, the argument from popularity, that ad populum fallacy, is what you commit uh, when the uh, when the, the fact that the majority thinks something is irrelevant to whether or not it's true. The argument that I'm making is the majority opinion on this in Canada is a pretty good sign that most people are satisfied with the system. We want. That kind of satisfaction of the population is one of the goals of a healthcare system. And I know you said you did immigration last time. There's, you know, if, if it's at all possible at any point in the next 10 minutes, there's a question I would really like to ask you about immigration, uh, but it's your call whether we talk about that or not.
0: Okay, so the fact that Canadians like their healthcare system, you do understand that Canadians are subject to barrages of propaganda from government schools, from government uh, paid for and owned broadcast networks now, Canadian mo- most Canadian media outlets get $140,000 a week from the liberal government. So the idea that Canadians have access to any kind of information that is objective or factual or moral about their healthcare system is one thing. The other thing, of course, which you are very well aware of, I'm sure, is that all of the Western governments are heavily indebted. And this, to me, is a big issue that's kind of cast over when people say, oh, well, this is a wonderful system, and we've got this great health care, and we've got this, this... But the reality is that, that uh, every human life on this planet, Ben, is sustained by $30,000 in debt. So yeah, it's pretty easy to bribe people with the unborn generation's future productivity and sell them off to banksters for (laughs) votes, but that is an utterly unsustainable system. The unfunded liabilities in America, which are in fact the result of your democratic system, the democratic system that you think is so wonderful. It is a democracy in America, technically a republic, but it's kind of operating like a democracy now. We see how well the constitution has withstood the COVID epidemic. And so in this democracy, People are very happy when the government prints money and borrows money and uh, 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 just makes up money out of thin air. They're very happy to get, quote, free stuff at the expense of future generations. But the system is utterly unsustainable. What is going to happen when a bill that is much more, much greater than 10 times the annual GDP of America or other Western countries comes due? Well, what's going to happen is people are going to say, well, I guess we got half a century of pretty good health care, and then the bill came due, and then what? See, it's easy to look at the guy who's unemployed and just living off his credit cards and say, wow, that guy's really got it figured out until he goes to jail for fraud or non-payment of bills or whatever it is, right? So looking at a snapshot is not looking at the continuum. The system of democracy in the West is people voting for free stuff, the government creating and borrowing money for free stuff, And that is absolutely unsustainable. And the fact that you want more of it, I mean, come on, last point I'll make, and then I'll turn it back over to you. So the current level, let's just talk about the states, the current level of social spending is about 20 times larger than the entire economy at the turn of the last century. Now, Marxists and socialists said, you know, if we get, you know, 40% of this economy, man, we can totally solve the problem of poverty. And now they have about 10 to 20 times more money at the moment than they had back when they said a little bit more money will solve the problem. And the problem not only is not solved, but in many ways, the problem of poverty is getting worse. So if you have 10 to 20 times more money than you thought you ever needed to solve the problem of poverty, and the problem of poverty is still not solved, it might be worth reexamining the whole process that you're claiming is going to solve it.
1: All right, well, this idea that um, Marxists uh, were ever saying that uh, a bit more social you know just a little bit more social spending within the current system rather than a radical restructuring of the current system uh which would solve poverty is certainly a surprise to me i've never talked to uh, a marxist who had that view that sounds more like liberalism uh, but in any case uh, the idea that canadians uh can't tell what kind of service they're getting from their health care system that uh that they're so diluted uh, by propaganda that they can't uh, they can't think uh, for themselves uh, strikes me as uh, as fairly incredible um, and when it comes to the question of debt right you know you want wait to wait say, sorry
0: it strikes me as fairly incredible is that an argument I, I don't know what like your personal uh, incredulity no, no, no. is not an argument.
1: <laughs> uh, well. It's an application of Christopher Hitchens' principle that's what's asserted without argument can be dismissed without argument.
0: But the idea- Wait, do you that, not think the 12 oh, that 12 years of propaganda matter to people?
1: That healthcare working much better in societies with socialized systems than it does in a society like the United States, that this can be dismissed as a short-term phenomenon by gesturing at debt uh, really ignores the specifics of the situation. I know you said that you find- uh, Academic papers on technical issues and logic incomprehensible, but in this case we 're just talking no about no that 's sim- not
0: what I said wow, no that 's sim- no come on <laughs> man that 's not what I said I said that they 're uh, incomprehensible to the working class layperson that 's a difference
1: oh, I see okay all right uh, so in this case we 're talking about pretty simple arithmetic uh, that if uh, if you have a socialized system. Like, uh, like Canada's rather than what we have in the United States not only does this not add uh, you know this this is actually more efficient in terms of overall amount of money that's being spent that if you raise taxes uh, to pay for it uh, it's still the case that because you have one big uh, health insurance system rather than a bunch of competing ones that all have their own overhead uh, and these you know these profit seekers taking a big cut. Uh, it's a much more efficient way to pay for it, and if you're comparing the taxes plus private insurance premiums, that even a middle-income taxpayer is paying before the tax increase to pay for Medicare for all, to what they're paying taxes after Medicare for all. Even if it's a pretty regressive tax, uh, they've still got more money in their pocket left over. So there's absolutely no reason why implementing this system would actually have to add even a penny to the debt. Um, just out of curiosity, am I going to get to ask that question about immigration or are we just not doing that?
0: Uh, I mean, I've done immigration so many times, it's not particular of interest to me. But uh, uh, let's see if you wanted to bring up another topic. Otherwise, we can continue on the healthcare issue.
1: All right. Uh, so here's another topic. I watched a video that you did uh, about the non-aggression principle, uh, which we were talking about earlier. Um, and... Uh, you uh, you made some um, some really interesting claims in that video that that i was I was hoping uh, to ask you about, uh, because you addressed uh, because you know you want to say these are universal principles. Right? That's the universally preferable behavior. And the article that you were responding to made an objection to this, which is a classic objection to Kantian ethics. What about the um, the murderer at the door? uh who uh you know who's who wants to know where someone is so they can go kill them right surely you can lie to them but lying is wrong right so is lying really universally wrong and there are no exceptions and what i found interesting was earlier in the video you'd said quite reasonably that uh defense of property rights has to be proportional you can't shoot someone just for trespassing but, uh, but then you said, when you were talking about the murder at the door objection, that morality just ceases to exist, like a vampire turning into mist in the sunlight when you're under a situation of coercion. So what my question is, is how can it be true at the same time, all three of these things, that any sort of violation of property rights is coercion, that morality ceases to exist when you're subject to coercion, and that's the reason... Uh, why the universal prohibition against lying doesn't apply in the the murder-at-the-door situation, but also, uh, number three, that even though morality has ceased to exist, when you have this coercive violation of your property rights, uh, you also have to be proportional in how you respond to that coercion. Is that not a moral requirement?
0: Okay, so, I mean, that's a big complicated set of topics. I'll be as brief as I possibly can. Uh, But um, so the system of ethics that uh, Ben is referring to is called universally preferable behavior. And the book is available for free. The audio book is available for free. The PDF, the HTML, the video are all available for free at freedomain.com. So this is my argument for ethics. And it divides actions into five categories, right? So there's universally preferable behavior, uh, respect for property rights, don't rape, don't steal, don't assault, don't murder. And then there's aesthetically preferable actions such as, you know, being on time, being relatively polite and so on. It's nice, but you can't force them at the point of a gun. There's neutral actions like running for a bus. Is that moral? Is that immoral? It doesn't really fall into the category. And then, like, you know, when you look at a lake, uh, you look at a, a forest across a lake, there's like the forest trees going up and then there's the reflection going down. You can kind of think of that, that each of these three categories, right? Moral, Uh, aesthetically preferable, nice-to-have, and neutral, have their negatives, right? Aesthetically negative actions and then banned actions like rape, theft, assault, and murder. Now, the reason that universally preferable behavior bans rape, theft, assault, and murder is that they cannot be universalized, right? So you can't say theft is universally preferable behavior because then you would be saying that everybody must want to both steal and be stolen from simultaneously. But if you want to be stolen from, in other words, if you want someone to take your property, then it's not theft, right? So theft can only exist when something is asymmetric. Now, in other words, I want to take your property. You don't want me to take your property, right? Right. And so it's the same thing with uh, rape and, and murder and assault and so on. Assault is when you don't want it. Like if you and I are play fighting or play boxing or whatever, and one of us gets injured, it's like, well, we kind of knew there was a risk going in. Or if somebody's in a boxing ring that are consenting to that kind of, it's not really assault, you can't charge someone for assault. So that is universally preferable behavior in a nutshell. You can, it is absolutely logically and practically possible for everybody To respect property rights, to not kill, not rape, not steal, right? At any given time in the world, it's all, you know, logically possible, whereas the converse is not true, right? You can't say rape is universally preferable behavior and have it be logically consistent because rape is unwanted behavior. And if everybody wants to rape and be raped, then rape ceases to exist as a moral category and it just winks out of existence. So with regards to lying, lying and telling the truth uh, are not universally Preferable behaviors; they do not fall into the category of morality with regard, like at the same level as rape, theft, assault, and murder. And uh, so, like you should never rape, right? But you can not tell the truth. I mean, we do it all the time, right? I mean, oh, you, yes, these, this dress does make you look slimmer, or whatever. Right? I mean, it doesn't really matter. These these sort of little niceties, these white lies, and so on. And so, I've never said that lying, or, or rather, telling the truth, is universally preferable. Behavior. Now, with regards to proportionality, the question is in a voluntary society, what kind of enforcement of rules do you want? Like, if you want a real democracy, then you have companies competing for the best way to provide moral and legal and contractual services to people like I sent this guy 500 bucks he didn't send me an iPad okay well how do you want that to be dealt with well in a a democracy you have to run to the government and hope that the very rich trillionaire who got there first doesn't have a better ear of the prime minister or the president or the congressman or the congresswoman or whoever But what you do want is a whole group of companies trying to figure out how best and most efficiently to provide the services of things like contract enforcement and property security and all of those other kind of good things that we want from civilization. And the way that you do that is you get a dollar democracy, right? You vote for with your dollars who's going to be the very best. At providing these services in the same way that you vote for who's going to be the best at providing your cell phone services by signing up with one carrier versus another. And they all work together the same way that these companies would when it comes to enforcement of contracts. Now, I personally would not want to do business with a company that said, Oh yeah, if somebody accidentally wanders onto your property, you can totally blow them away. And like I just wouldn't want that because it could happen to me, could my kid might wander onto there property. It uh, could be any number of things. And nobody would want that because it would just be too much of a, a problem, too much of an intense um, issue to deal with. with. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm almost done. I know it's a long time and I, I will absolutely shut up and, and let you take the help from here. But uh, I'm almost finished. So violence is very expensive and very risky and very dangerous in society. Like, I mean, I had a friend of mine served on a jury duty. And what happened was there was a guy in a bar and he got into some stupid argument with a guy about who was the best boxer and he just pushed the guy. Right, And then the guy slipped on some beer suds, fell backwards, hit his head on the edge of the bar, and ended up in a coma. And And it was just, God, like these little things, like little bits of violence can cause massive lifelong uh, problems for people. You know, there's that story, the photographer Marlon Brando, the actor, punched him. The guy had to spend five years in dental offices trying to get his jaw and his teeth fixed. I mean, it can be, so you want to have a society where violence is kept to an absolute Complete and total minimum. So if somebody doesn't pay for something that they have bought from you, you don't want people going over there with guns. What you do want is some sort of economic or social consequence. Like on eBay, if you don't ship stuff, you get a bad rating and it's bad for your business. You want to explore all of the conceivable nonviolent solutions that you can find. And the only way you can do that is not through the state which is just one big giant gun pointed at society that's generally in control of the rich and powerful, you want to do that through a series of competing agencies that can all figure out the best, cheapest, most peaceful, and most efficient way to resolve social conflicts, which are inevitably going to happen. So with regards to lying... Yeah, you can lie, you can tell the truth. It's a little different if you're kind of under oath or whatever that would be the equivalent of in a free society, or if you've signed a contract, which is sort of a, a more serious promise, then yeah, I'll get round to it. Honey, I'll, I'll fix that uh, fence in the backyard one day soon, or fix it tomorrow, you don't get round to it. And so when someone has a gun pointed to their head, morality is not part of the equation. Because if you're gonna bring morality into the situation where someone has a gun to their head, the first person you need to focus on is not the person on the receiving end of the gun, but the person actually holding the gun. Because they're the person who has stripped free will and produced a binary option to the person at the receiving end of the gun. So if we're gonna focus, on a violent situation, someone's got a gun to their head, the person we focus on is the person pointing the gun, not the person desperately trying to find some way to survive the encounter. All right, sorry, sorry for that long speech. It was a big topic and I'm all ears now.
1: All right, we might focus on the person pointing the gun, but does the person who the gun has been pointed at have a moral obligation to be proportional in their response?
0: I'm not sure what you mean by proportional in their response to what?
1: Okay, so, your claim in the video was that uh, that morality just does not apply when somebody is subject to coercion. And what I was originally trying to figure out, right, I mean, I understand you said uh, that actually your view is that uh, the prohibition against line is not universal, fine. But, um, but you said that uh, that when somebody is being coerced, right, morality just doesn't apply to that situation. It ceases to exist.
0: Well, for the victim. Uh, for, for the victim, yeah.
1: right. So if I'm I'm trying to figure out how this applies to the idea, if this is your idea, that it's not just inadvisable, but actually morally wrong to shoot someone just for trespassing. Uh, and if, because if morality doesn't apply to that situation, to the situation, of the victim of coercion and any kind of violation of property rights is coercion, uh, then it would seem to follow that morality does not apply uh, to the property owner whose property is being trespassed on. I'm
0: so sorry. <laughs> I, I apologize. For, I lost the thread of that. And I'm sorry. Uh, not your fault no. at all. But if you could run past that again, I'd no appreciate problem.
1: it. No problem. So if you think that any kind of violation of property rights is coercion, and if you think that when somebody is under coercion, morality does not apply to the person being coerced, uh, then do you have a moral reason, not just a pragmatic one, like, oh, maybe people won't want to do business with me, but are you doing something immoral if you shoot someone just for trespassing because it would seem to follow from the first two claims that you are not?
0: Okay, so, I mean, the question with morality is, and the question of proportionality would would be something like this. So if somebody is running at you with a chainsaw saying, I'm going to cut your head off. Well, you are in imminent physical danger. And this is why in just about every common law system of self-defense, somebody who is aggressing against you uh, and, and uh, is about to do something that could kill you or cause grievous bodily harm, that you're perfectly within your rights to kill that person in order to eliminate the threat, right? And, and to restore the continuity of your life to its prior trajectory, so to speak, right? And you're walking down the street and you've got every reason to believe you're going to make it to the end of the street without having a heart attack or having a piano fall on your head, Looney Tune style. Somebody comes at you with a chainsaw, then you have to protect your life because you're in imminent danger of grievous bodily harm or death, right? Now, somebody who steps on your property, they're not about to kill you, right? I mean, they're not about to kill you. They're not doing any particular harm. And so how do you gain restitution or how do you restore... Yourself to your prior situation. Well, what you do is you say, "Hey, um, do you mind moving off my property?" Or you know, if you're some cantankerous old character, "Get off my lawn, kids," or something like that, right? So it's about restoring yourself to your original state, right? So nobody's done any particular grievous bodily harm, or about to kill you just by wandering onto your property, and you may not even care that much, you know, like, uh, when I was a kid, we would, you know, go through people's backyards, they didn't care, it was fine, and all that kind of stuff, right? So it's a question of how much harm is being done to you by the action guy with a chainsaw, guy walking across your lawn. Now, if you have enough people walking across your lawn, then maybe you get one of those little, I don't know, bald patches of, of grass and you find that uh, aesthetically unappealing or whatever. So you can ask people to go around, you can put up a sign, you can put up a fence. There's things that you can do to restore the glory of your lawn to which lush uh, green emerald state or whatever. But uh, it really is a matter of the proportionality of the harm that is being done to you and what you have to do to restore yourself, your property to its prior um unharmed situation while you obviously the guy with the chainsaw can do significant harm so you can use significant violence even to the point of lethality to protect yourself Whereas somebody walking across your grass is doing very little harm and therefore uh, excess proportionality would be unjust
1: okay Uh, so violating proportionality would be morally wrong i'm sorry so a more than proportional response is morally wrong even though you're uh, even though you're the victim of coercion
0: uh, even though you're the victim of, sorry, you just cut out there, even though you're the victim of coercion? Yeah. Well, sure, a disproportionate response is uh, then you you really become the aggressor because you're harming the person far more than they're harming you through their actions.
1: All right, so that that does sound like morality doesn't disappear just because you're under coercion. But no, the Uh, example
0: I gave was somebody with a gun to their head, not somebody whose lawn is being walked across. I mean, you can extend it to that if you want, but that's not the argument I was making.
1: Okay, well, the the claim that you made, the exact words were, you know, because you're subject to coercion, uh, then morality, morality disappears. If what you mean is you're subject to the threat of lethal, you know, you're subject to um, to like the imminent threat of lethal violence, you know, morality disappears um, that strikes me as a different claim. Well, I hang on, hang on a
0: sec. Sorry, let me let me clarify that. So if, like, we, we all understand that if I kidnap you and make you rob a bank, who's morally mm-hmm. responsible? Like, I have a gun to your head and I say, or I go in, you know, and I make you rob a bank. Are you morally responsible for my forcing you to do something?
1: Uh, no, but I don't think you have to say that morality ceases to exist when somebody's under coercion to say that somebody isn't morally responsible because the only reason they did something is they were under coercion.
0: But you're not morally responsible for what I force you to do at gunpoint, right?
1: Yes. If the only reason you did it was it was because. Yeah. yeah, yeah of- OK.
0: Well, yeah. OK. You're not robbing a bank unless I force you to. Now I'm forcing you to rob a bank. I'm the one who goes to jail and people say, gosh, you know, Ben, that was a terrible situation. I'm, I hope you're OK. Um, let, let's talk about it. And man, you've got a quite a story to tell and you get a lot of sympathy and maybe you'll, you know, get an award if you can help turn me in or something like that. But so we're in perfect agreement. If I force you to do something, we don't judge you morally. Uh, other than as a victim, in which case a moral judgment is sympathetic towards you, but people would judge me morally as forcing you to do something, so I'm not sure what we're disagreeing with here, because the morality for you is try and survive the idiot with the gun, right?
1: Again, I don't think morality ceases to exist. Uh, The much narrower claim is that you're not morally responsible for things that you did only because you're under coercion. We can keep talking about this. I do want to point out that I think... um, We've been, we've cut into the audience question time by about 10 minutes now.
0: Uh, Okay. Yeah. I mean, whether you're not morally responsible or morality ceases to exist is just semantics. I just wanted to point that out. Okay.
1: It's not just semantics, right? Yes. There's a huge distinction between those two claims that you're not morally responsible for a certain category of actions that you do while you're under coercion uh, because the person who's coercing you to do them is responsible for them. And that nothing you do under, you know, in response to that coercion could be morally objectionable, which is certainly at least what it sounds like you're saying. When you Yeah, say well,
0: that. you know, sounds like it's a, is a cheap way of saying that you're just going to straw man me. All right. So let's uh, go. Hang on. Let's 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 go on to the questions here. Uh, let's go on. So if you want to uh, have questions for Ben or for myself, and uh, I really do appreciate this conversation. It's been uh, it's been very enjoyable for me and i know i say that sounds very enjoyable <laughs> but it really has been very uh enjoyable so if you do have questions uh, you can post them up on oh, we're broadcasting to a whole bunch of different places here and you know what i just wanted to point out by the by first of may right it's friday it's friday night people could be out here doing a whole bunch of things but we got like north of two thousand people watching a debate on moral philosophy and free markets and the just organization of society. I just want to blow a massive kiss to you guys out there. This is a beautiful thing to see. And I really, really do appreciate everybody's attention. I've been getting lots of messages all day. Can't wait. And uh, I really, really do appreciate. We're on lockdown, dude. (laughs) That's right. So that you're not responsible for coming to (laughs) to watch our show. Because... Uh, you see you're on lockdown. That's very funny. That's very funny. Good job. All right. Uh, Let's see here. What have we got here? Um, I'm just waiting for people to come up with their questions and not insulting my appearance, which, you know, is is natural and understandable. Um, All right. Sorry, that's not what I wanted to show. I'll hide these things again.
1: Not everybody could have my Adonis-like appearance, Stefan
0: yeah that's true i I appreciate a man who combs his hair with an artwork. that's uh that's very impressive better than tiktok all right stefan blows his audience a kiss stefan is an e-girl confirmed do not make me take off my top actually if i am maybe ben will too and we'll flex we'll flex all right what have we got here Uh, oh here's one for you how does your immigrants immigration stance agree with libertarianism Uh, Now, did this come out right after Ben was typing off screen under the moniker Oliver Edelson? How does your immigration stance agree with libertarianism? I'm happy to answer that. Um, But uh, um, I had I did just do this actually twice with prior debates. So let's see here. Um, Yeah. okay. Uh, So how does your immigration stance agree with with libertarianism? Okay. So this is not my argument, and people do sort of mistake it for my argument. And I don't mind claiming when an argument is mine, but this isn't, isn't one of them. So this is an old argument, goes back to Milton Friedman, which is, if you have a welfare state, then people, and many people, will in fact come into the country not because they value your liberties, they value your values, they love the free market, they agree with the Constitution, they worship the Founding Fathers, or they agree with the minimalist free market, uh, um, gun-allowing, First Amendment kind of country, but because they can get free stuff from the taxpayers, right? And so if you have people coming into a country who then generally swell the ranks of those in recipients of free stuff, then you create a very volatile, a very dangerous situation in society where growing resentment, of people who are coming in from the overburdened taxpayers the people who are coming in and basically squatting on the taxpayers wallet it creates a huge amount of resentment a huge amount of problems and it is not how you can have a society of stable continuance now for me i'm very much a huge fan of open borders for sure i mean you know throw throw uh, uh america throw canada throw all countries uh, wide to the world but if you have a welfare state then you have a a whole different set of people who are going to come in. This isn't everyone. Of course, there are lots of people who come to America, who come to Canada, who love the free market, who want small government and so on. But statistically, the people who have been coming in, particularly since the 1960s, when the Democrats really did shift immigration standards, statistically, the people who come into the country end up significantly higher on the welfare rolls, they end up with uh, less sympathy for free speech, they end up with uh, greater sympathy for socialism and and larger government, which you know is is a lot of fun for people like Ben, but not a lot of fun for uh, people who want smaller government and lower taxes. So that's it's an old argument. You can have open borders, or you can have a welfare state, you can't really have both.
1: Well, um, I'm actually, I uh, I I'm really surprised by this argument, whether from Milton Friedman or for from you. Uh, because, you know, when libertarians, even, even minarchist libertarians, never mind anarcho-capitalists, you know, go on and on about the worst things that states have done, right? I would think, for example, about like Stalin deporting entire nationalities uh, to uh, to Siberia. Uh, and it seems to me that you could make a structurally identical argument to the one we just heard for... Uh, for doing that as long as the ethnicity of being, you know, being deported from the country uh, by state force rather than being kept out of the country by state force was one that was statistically more likely to vote for left-wing politicians or more likely, uh, not every individual he just said, right, but that the group, right, is more likely to either use social services, Um, ultimately, over the course of a long time, uh, immigrants actually pay more in than they get get out. If you wanted to hear more about that, watch Stefan's debate with Matt, I don't want to repeat that territory. But the point I wanted to make is if you say, oh, it's not a violation of the non-aggression principle uh, to use violence to keep people from peacefully moving from country to country, uh, as long as the people that you're stopping are more likely statistically to vote for left-wing politicians or to use social services, then I don't understand why you couldn't make a structurally identical argument for mass deportations of entire ethnicities uh, if you think that members of that ethnicity are more likely than members of some other ethnicity to vote for left-wing politicians or use social services. Wait, you
0: have no idea how that argument could be made?
1: Well, I do, actually, because you just said that the reason that it's okay to restrict immigration is that immigrants are more likely, you gave two reasons, to vote for left-wing politicians, they're more likely to vote for social service, to need social services. Well, in that case, by parity of reasoning, why not say if there's some ethnic group within, uh, within the United States, within Canada, uh, that's more likely to vote for left-wing politicians or need social services than some other ethnic group, then the first one uh, can be forcibly deported from the country and it's not a violation of the non-aggression principle. I don't understand how you can differentiate those two arguments.
0: Okay, well I guess I can break it out for you pretty, pretty simply and I don't mean that as an insult, it's just blindingly obvious to me, so maybe that means I'm mistaken. So let's say that I have um, a house for rent, Right, and uh, there's a bunch of people uh, who are hippies who who come up uh, and and they want to you know they're smoking drugs and they're playing loud music and they're like, hey man, you know we we want our commune, we want to come and rent your place, right? Now, do I have the right to say no? You can't rent my place. You know, I just choose not to rent to people who kind of look like they're going to wreck the place or cause a lot of trouble with the neighbors or have the cops come by or whatever it is. In the same way that if some couple comes up and they're screaming at each other and they're about to hit each other and they're like, hey man, I really want to rent your place. It's like, I don't really want to rent my place to some hell fighting couple who's going to be beating up each other, screaming at the top of their lungs and having the police come by. So, you know, that's not a violation. I'm not initiating force by not letting those people into my property, right? I mean, clearly they they have already a place to live, right? And, and other people have their own countries that they're already living in and so on. So not letting people into your property is not a violation of the non-aggression principle. However, if people are born in a country or they, and that they own a house, me going in and kicking them out of their house and tossing them into some other country because I don't like their politics is very much a violation of the non-aggression principle. So I'm not sure where the difficulty is in understanding the difference between these two things.
1: Well, the obvious difference between the two things is that deciding not to rent to someone is very different from using violence, sending you know, like jackbooted border control patrol or ice thugs uh, to um, to stop somebody from going into the country. No, or no, no, around. no,
0: it's not. If, look, if, if somebody if somebody wants to move into a place and they don't have a legal right to be there, of course you use security guards to keep them out. Have you never tried to go into a mall when it's closed? Of course you use security guards to keep people out of property that they're not allowed to come in. And the, the, the country, I don't agree with the government owning the country or the taxpayers owning the country, but that's the, that's the situation as it stands that the government... Uh, and the taxpayers and the the people who've built the country and the people who are born in the country, they kind of own the country. It's the way that nationalism works. And so, of course, you use force to prevent people from entering property that isn't theirs. And there's legal ways to get into property. You can rent. You can buy. You can house sit. You can uh, be lent the, the property or something like that. And in the same way, there are legal ways to gain entry to the property called the United States or Canada or Israel or whatever. And um, so yeah, I think the analogy holds just fine.
1: All right, so I've been told that uh, when uh, when you interrupt me and that I, I start to continue to talk because you just interrupted me, uh, so we're both talking at the same time. Uh, people watching on YouTube can only hear you, and I'm muted, uh, I don't know. Oh, I don't I, mute you,
0: by the way. That's just something on the software.
1: I'm not saying that you did anything to make that happen, but mm-hmm. that is what I've heard the case for whatever reason. Uh, but what I was trying to say uh, before I was interrupted was that uh, the obvious disanalogy is between what you would consider a free market interaction, right? Renting or choosing not to rent a property, and even in an anarcho-capitalist utopia, anybody could choose not to rent out a property to anybody they didn't like for presumably... Any reason, right, even racial bias, et cetera, which is one of many reasons I wouldn't want to live in an anarcho-capitalist utopia, uh, whereas uh, you said that the that absent the welfare state, uh, the, uh, that border restrictions would be a violation of the non-aggression principle. They would count as an initiation of force. And the obvious reason for that distinction is that what matters for the non-aggression principle uh, Going to be in the weird position of the uh, Marxist uh, uh, explaining the non-aggression principle of libertarian. What matters for the non-aggression principle isn't who is actually in possession of something as a matter of law, right? Uh, if you didn't think there were unjust laws, uh, what on earth would be the point of anarchism? Uh, it's who is has morally entitled to that as a result of one of these theories of just original acquisition, like... Uh, If you can trace uh, your ownership of something back through a bunch of free market transactions to someone who was the first one to see something or the first one to use something or the first one to mix their labor with it, depending on what your theory of just original acquisition is. That last one always sort of struck me as a philosophical version of, uh, you know, little boys like spitting on something and saying it was theirs now. I don't think that's a a very... um, Thoughtful or morally compelling way to decide justice and uh, in distribution, but regardless, you clearly don't think that the government is, owns the uh, the country in the sense of being morally entitled
0: to uh, to exclusive use of it. No, but you're right? a big fan of democracy, right? Capitalist. You're a big fan of democracy, and I think its last count, eighty percent of Americans want a complete stop to immigration.
1: Okay, that is an argument for popularity. uh, No, no, you're,
0: you're a fan. That's why I prefaced it with you're a fan of democracy. So you believe that the will of the people should have a significant sway over the policies of the country, right? Otherwise, you're just a totalitarian, right? Because you want a lot of government power, but with no input from the people. So if the majority of people, the vast majority of people in the West, in America, want a complete stop to immigration, which has, of course, been quite nuts, Uh, over the past uh, 40, 50 years, like a million plus people pouring into America. uh, Proportionality, uh, sorry, from a a per capita standpoint, it's even higher. In Canada, there isn't the resources, there isn't the infrastructure, there isn't the educational system, there isn't the housing. It's brutal on the existing population. Uh, You've got multi-language issues, you've got multicultural issues. I mean, in uh, Mississauga, now, uh, this this, uh, place where I live, there is uh, the call to prayer is now being broadcast at massively high volumes five times a day and so on. So these are big uh, challenges. And they're not challenges that the people were particularly consulted on. They weren't asked. And, uh, of course, the other thing, too, it's brutal for young people because they can't afford housing. I mean, housing should be dropping in value, in price, because the boomers are retiring and moving out of their big homes to smaller places. So the price of housing should be going down. But because people are just... Coming in like crazy. Uh, the price of housing is going up. They're also um, uh, the, the price of uh, the wages should be going up, right? I'm sure you're aware, particularly true for blacks and Hispanics in America, people at the bottom rungs of the economic ladder are being brutalized by mass immigration that is driving down their wages, that is displacing them from their neighborhoods, that is increasing their tax bill. And it's absolutely brutal. And for those who have no question or concern or care, For the hard done by minorities who are currently being eviscerated by mass immigration policies, I just got to ask you, where's your heart? I mean, good heavens, the blacks in America have suffered so enormously under slavery, under Jim Crow, under segregation. They were just beginning to pick themselves up and start to join the middle class enormously uh, after um, uh, after the end of the 1950s and into the 1960s. Then the welfare state came and eviscerated. The single mother welfare state came along and eviscerated the black family, which just got trashed. And then mass immigration came in and ground them into the dust when it came to just being able to earn money and support their families. I mean, it's just been absolutely brutal. And doesn't America have a special obligation? to the blacks in America to ensure that they have as great a future as humanly possible rather than pouring all the money into supporting every other culture, language, race and religion that wants to come into America and drive down the wages of the most vulnerable, the most persecuted, the most ground down group in American history are further being ground down by the left's greed for free and easy votes. And I think it's absolutely unconscionable.
1: All right. So to finish up the answer that I'd started on the democracy question. Uh, saying the reason that it really is the ad populum fallacy to say that uh, how many people support immigration restrictions is relevant here is because the question in dispute is not should there be a military coup so that like to make sure that you know nobody can enact any uh, laws restricting immigration uh, through, uh, through the democratic system. The question is what should the uh, PA what, sh- what immigration laws should people want right what would be moral uh, for uh, for yeah, for them to want uh, and my contention and the and Oliver's contention in the question uh, was that there's an obvious inconsistency between saying that we have this absolute deontological duty to the non-aggression principle uh, and saying that we should have immigration restrictions. And particularly, this is the case um, because if you're uh, if you're going to uh, if you're going to to make uh, this uh, this argument, right? That because listen to everything you just said, right? All the stuff that you're talking about uh, was about how um, there are supposed to be all these bad consequences of immigration, right? Immigration is bad for jobs. It's bad because apparently having people practice other religions is bad, the call for prayer, I don't know. But we have this absolute ontological principle, non-consequentialist obligation to the non-aggression principle, then you should follow it regardless of how bad the consequences are.
0: So you're just gonna completely ignore everything I said about how disastrous this is for the black community? Like you just don't care because what, it's free votes for your socialist paradise? Come on, man. Have a heart, have some compassion you? for this wrecked community in the United States. God's sakes, where's your heart, man?
1: You should let me finish the point.
0: Now- the No, you hell, did, you, you you trailed off.
1: ...of what you just said. It's not a representation of what you said. It's an explanation of why what you just said was not relevant to resolving the obvious contradiction between your professed deontological libertarianism uh, and your, support, your willingness to support violent enforcement of restrictions of who can move peacefully from country to country, your willingness to support violations of free market principles when it comes to stuff like, hey, employer X wants to give immigrant Y, who's currently in Mexico, a job. a uh, Landlord X wants to give immigrant Y uh, a place to live in the United States when immigrant Y is currently in Mexico. If you believe in the non-aggression principle, you believe in not my principles, your principles, then you should say, yeah, the state has no business interfering uh, with that interaction. Uh, If it did, then we're back in the territory where you could deport entire nationalities. I explained why the non-renting analogy to defend that didn't work. Uh, But if you're going to say that this is a deontological thing, you can't say, well, because of all of these alleged bad economic and cultural consequences, then we can support immigration controls.
0: So again, you just don't care about how harmful this is to the black community because it gets you votes for your socialist paradise. I think that's really cold, man. I think the blacks have suffered in America to such a huge degree. That's just brutal. I don't even know what to say about that.
1: Okay. Notice that what you're saying is a, an ad hominem, right? It is as Stefan Molyneux put it, not an argument. Right? You know, just a true. No, it's an
0: observation that you don't care how brutal this is to the black community and the Hispanic community, who are, and the black community in particular, has just been completely (laughs) hammered by the welfare state and by immigration. It's just wretched.
1: Against what I pointed out about the obvious inconsistency of your views and why none of these alleged consequentialist advantages to restricting immigration resolve that obvious inconsistency.
0: Well, and you also said that you just disproven the example of the house renting versus me kicking someone out of their house. Uh, you just said it, but you have not actually proven it. All right, let's let's drop this because I'm I'm sorry, like it's not an argument. Hang on.
1: From the perspective of your libertarian ethics. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. Tell, not- tell me more about my libertarian ethics, because you care so much about ethics. You support communism and the death of 100 million people because you're just so concerned about ethics all the time. Well
1: with it? I am re-explaining what's wrong with it. What's wrong with it is that under free market principles, your principles, uh, the an individual landlord has a right to rent or not rent to whoever they want yep. because they are morally entitled to their property. But under your anarcho-capitalist principles, the state is not morally entitled. A majority, democratically even, is not morally entitled to decide who can travel around from one geographic region to another. So I'm not just dismissing it without argument. I'm explaining why, if we're taking your stated principles seriously, the analogy does not work.
0: Well, the only thing I can say, Ben, is that you didn't have your listening ears on at the beginning of this conversation, or maybe it's been a while and you've forgotten, but I said that um, I do not define The free market and capitalism as a current existing system. So when you talk about all of this peaceful and free movement of people, well when people move into a location, disproportionately take tax dollars and disproportionately vote for bigger and bigger government, that is not the same as just some guy moving in in a free society next door. So this conflation, when it's explicitly denied, and there was a damn good reason why I did that at the beginning, Ben, I explicitly denied that the ideals that I propose are applicable in a morally consistent way to the existing system. I don't want the existing system. I hate the existing system. I think it's predatory. I think it's violent. I think it's vile, and I think in particular, it does harm the poor and minorities and and in brutal ways that I think are very much going to lead to massive amounts of social conflict and perhaps even a civil war in America. So when you say, well, how do your uh, highfalutin libertarian ideals apply to this particular situation? It's like, well, the answer is they don't. They simply don't. The current system is brutal and violent and indebted and predatory and counterfeiting and nasty all around. And so, when you say, "Well, but you have an issue with this, that, or the other," it's like, "Yeah, because we're in a situation of coercion here." And as I already talked about before, the greater the coercion, the less moral responsibility for people trying to survive. Maybe you can't put these two things together, but I'm pretty sure that the audience can. All right, let's drop that and let's move on to uh, another question. Well, actually,
1: here. several minutes ago, the uh, the moderator told us that we were uh, that we were done uh, with this uh, this portion that. Uh, that it was time
0: to move on. Uh, Can we just see, uh, just in case anybody has a yearning burning that's not uh, related to uh, immigration, uh, if there is one, uh, if not, we can, uh, let's see here, the UK has, let's see here, the UK has introduced a point system for immigration to bring in the best people who improve our economy and not live off our benefit system. Well, Colin, I mean, listen, I, I understand that. I think that's very interesting and so on. But here's the problem, is that the more you take Oh, hang on a sec. I think I got hiccuped here. I'm not sure if you guys can still hear me, but uh, just a sec here. Uh, enter broadcast studio. Sorry about that. I got hiccuped here. Can you guys hear me again? Um, can you guys hear me? Oh, Ben, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear okay, you. Okay, sorry about that. I just got I got kicked off my own. I <laughs> kicked off my own stream. All right, so. Here's here's the problem with that. And this is practical consequentialist stuff. This isn't, you know, big abstract ethics time, although I think ethics are involved. But I dislike when first world countries in particular go in and just scrape and gouge essential resources out of, say, developing nations, third world nations and so on. I think it's, it's pretty, pretty bad if, Now, it's bad enough to me when they go in and strip mine resources from third world countries, often using and manipulating some pretty iffy political systems and so on. But the better the quality of the immigrants who come to the first world from the third world, the worse the future prognosis is of the third world. Because if we go in as the first world and we say, "Ooh, we want all of the smartest and best and brightest and most wonderful people from the third world, what happens to those societies in the long run? Well, you're taking the best and the brightest and the most productive out of those economies who desperately need those people to start businesses, to, to move the economy forward, to be great teachers and doctors and lawyers and, and whatever. It's good writers. Who knows, right? And so what happens is because the countries aren't doing particularly well, and there's lots of complex reasons for that, you then say, OK, well, we'll just take 5% smartest people. Right. OK, so then that deals with the issue of having unproductive people come to the first world. But the problem is then the, you know, there's the, this, this Pareto principle or prices law or whatever, where, you know, the square root of any group, uh, the square root of any productive group produces half the value. Right. So in 10,000 people, if you have a company of 10,000 people, 100 of those people are producing half the total value. And of that, 10 of those 100 people is producing 25 percent of the total value. So you've got 10 people out of 10,000 producing half the value of the entire corporation, and this occurs in music, it occurs in sports, it occurs in the business world, it's a pretty common principle across the world. Now, if you say, well, we're going to take those 10 people from a third world country, we're going to bring them to the first world, or the 100 people, you're taking between 25 and 50% of the productivity of that group out of the third world. Now... What is that going to do to that third world? And I'm sorry to be using this. It's just my particular phraseology that you can say developing nation or poor country or whatever. But if you keep taking, scooping out these incredibly productive people to bring to your own economy, sure, you get a benefit for your own economy. But it is unbelievably difficult. Uh, And what it's going to do is cause an eventual collapse of that other Uh, economy, the third world economy, and then you end up with situations like, why is there a big giant migrant crisis? Well, partly because Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama destroyed Libya, uh, partly because uh, foreign aid has uh, pumped up birth rates, but also because countries in the third world have become progressively less functional, because the first world greed is scooping up all of these people, and rather than building up their own economies in their own countries, those countries are being left in the dust. People are finding those countries less and less functional to the point where everybody kind of has to flee. And I think it is a real pillaging of human capital because everybody sort of notices when physical capital gets uh, taken away, you know, like how they used to uh, go to the at the end of the Second World War. They literally disassemble entire German factories and ship them to England or, or you know, Russia did it, of course, in Poland and so on. And so when you strip physical capital, the means of production, it's pretty obvious. You've got to put them on a truck and load them someplace, and it's pretty bad for the local economy. Uh, I think it's arguably, and I think decisively, much worse, infinitely worse in a way to take the smartest and most productive people from struggling economies, bring them to the first world, everything decays and becomes a huge problem, and you end up with specifically and Largely non-functional societies where people have to flee. So uh, that's why uh, the the better the quality of immigrants in the first world, the more problems you're creating in the third world. So that's one thing I wanted to mention. I don't know if you wanted to, to comment on that, Ben, or we'll, we'll do another question.
1: Uh, let's do one last question and then let's go to closing statements because it's be- been about three minutes.
0: Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, let's see here. I have like three uh, windows open with... <laughs> various kinds of comments. So let me just see what we got here. Uh, Being homeless isn't practical because we don't have the ability to use public lands. Should land be left for people to live off the land rather than forced to participate in the market? Now, that's an interesting question, is the relationship of uh, public land to homelessness. Um, Did you want to, do you have any thoughts on that? Should should we dip into that one quickly?
1: Sure. Um, I mean, I, of course, think that uh, the government should be in the business of uh, establishing a right to housing. I think that uh, I think that I suspect that homelessness would be uh, would be far worse in a situation with no subsidized housing or anything like that uh, of any kind, uh, much less in a no-holes-barred anarcho-capitalist utopia. Uh, but if I had to guess, I would say that you probably I have honestly have no idea what it would be. But I'm guessing that you have some reason to think that uh, homelessness, like all the other problems of actually existing capitalism, uh, can be laid at the feet of government intervention.
0: Well, I mean, when you have a government that controls just about every aspect of education and social life, it's hard to avoid that. But uh, I do think that homelessness has a lot to do with child abuse. And I can't alter foreign policy. I can't remake the centralized, coercive banks into the image of something more free market. But what I can do, and as I have consistently done, and I'm sure Ben would uh, fully agree with me on this, that what I can do is I can get people to enact the non-aggression principle in their own life. Now, where do most people experience violence? Well, as, as Ben pointed out earlier, most people don't have a SWAT team kick in their door and and drag them off to jail. I hope not, (laughs) at least I hope not during this show. One guy did get arrested while I was doing a call-in show, but that's a topic for another time. So where is it that we experience the most violence in our lives? Well, the vast majority, depends on ethnicity, depends on race, but the vast majority of parents still spank their children. So when it comes to violation of the non-aggression principle, spanking is by far the most prevalent violation of the non-aggression principle that we're ever going to face in our lives. I mean, there's all the systemic violence and you pay your taxes because of this or that, regulations and so on, but you don't generally have a cop come up and backhand you across the face. So when it comes to practical philosophy, my focus for 15 straight years and for 20 years (laughs) before that, when I was uh, not a public figure, my focus has been to show people how powerful Moral philosophy is not in the abstract, which is great. And you have to have the abstracts. You have to have the theory before you know the knowledge. You have to have the blueprints before you have the bridge. So I'm not trying to knock abstract philosophy. That's what I found in the non-aggression principle. But you want to give people the power of philosophy in their own lives. And what I've consistently worked with, and I've interviewed subject matter experts on this, I've published the data, I've done entire presentations with lots of sources, is that spanking is not only immoral, but... Impractical, doesn't work, which is why 40% of kids in junior high are still getting spanked, even though it's supposed to have solved problems from the age of toddler onwards. So, where you can have the biggest impact in reducing coercion around the world is to not bully, not intimidate, and certainly not hit your own precious children. That's where philosophy can have the biggest impact in your life. Now, This is, uh, Gabor Maté is an amazing Canadian physician and uh, I think quite an expert on psychology. I've had him on my show a couple of times. And uh, he's worked a lot with homeless people in uh, what's called Vancouver's um, downtown east side. It's kind of like the the quote quote, ghetto of of Vancouver. And uh, yeah, of the drug addicts that he's treated, almost all of them. In fact, I can't think of a single instance in his theory or his books or his speeches a single exception to this basic rule that in particular, say, drug addicts to heroin or, or to other destructive substances, uh, all of them were abused as children. And in particular, the women were sexually abused as children, that's one of the reasons why they end up needing these drugs. And, and just, they don't take the drugs to feel better. They take the drugs to feel normal, to take away. It's like morphine for a spiritual ache. So as we... Rail against the state or we rail against capitalism as as Ben would do, this is all a good thing to do. like we have to have a long term journey, but you a long term destination, but you also need to know how to get there in the short run. In other words, it's great to have a destination called Chile, say, but you still have to know how to get to the airport and so what I would say is with regards to something like homelessness or mental illness and so on, sure, the government has done policies that have fragmented the family, a lot of single mother state uh, has come out of the welfare state, and that's I can't do much about that other than talk about it, but what I can do is really, really work hard to convince people that reasoning with your children rather than hitting them is the way to go. It is the most powerful manifestation of the non-aggression principle that you can bring to bear in your own life and the one that will bring you the greatest long-term happiness and stability.
1: All right, well, I certainly agree that people shouldn't hit their children, um, but I think that hoping for a very long-term cultural change, so no one does that, uh, even assuming something which uh, I think was at least an implicit premise of what we just heard, that uh, that you know child abuse causing uh, psychological problems later in life is the main cause of homelessness, even if we granted that premise, right? And I'm, I'm not sure we have any reason to do that, but even if we granted that premise, uh, then I would say that while we're waiting for some sort of long-term cultural change uh so no one hits their children, which would be good. I'm I'm you know I'm against people doing that. Uh then it would be really good to have uh some collective institutional and from my perspective, yes, government solutions uh to uh, to homelessness. Um I'll if Stefan wants to have the last word on this before we move to closing statements, you can do that. But I think we should do we should move
0: on to the closing statements. Yeah, I mean, I I think my closing statement is kind of just bundled up in everything that I have been uh, talking about. I think that the theoretical goal of equal morality for all is very essential. The non-aggression principle, the non-initiation of force is a foundational principle of our personal lives, of a just universe, a state with the, not just the right, but the requirement to initiate the use of force against Usually a disarmed population is a monstrous power to lay at the feet of anybody and will corrupt just about anybody who touches it. And I'm not sure I would even exclude Trump from that because uh, things pretty pretty bad things are happening with regards to that these days as well. Uh, the only people who should be granted political office, says the old argument, are those who desperately don't want it. But of course, they don't show up these days. And... The concern that Ben and the socialists and the Marxists have in general, I'm not speaking for him, but the, the concern that I recognize is that your power does corrupt. We have things to fear from corporations. We have things to fear from abusive bosses. We have things to fear from exploited bosses. And at least those remain in the realm of two things. One is voluntary, and the other is there's competition. And the best way to help workers is to increase demand for their services the more businesses that can be started the, the the fewer barriers there are to starting businesses the more that workers can start their own businesses or if they don't want to or don't have the ability to the more businesses will be competing for his or her labor for each individual worker and the best way to ensure the best outcome if you want good health and safety have lots of manufacturing plants where the uh, worker can pick and choose those who have the best safety record or not feel that they're going to be out of a job if they complain or question. If you want people to be independent of losing their health care, then of course you have to decouple health care and health insurance from people's jobs. That is something that was put in uh, during the Second World War as the result of government regulations. that said you couldn't give people wages, so governments, so sorry, corporations started taking over payments for health care insurance, and then it became coupled to the job, which has lowered, as Ben has pointed, rightly pointed out, lowered people's negotiating power and so on. So the best way to improve the lot of workers is to raise demand for their services as much as possible. Let people start business, teach people how to start businesses, get rid of this godforsaken abomination called government schools, which simply trains people to be docile sheep and comes right out of the Prussian model designed to produce brainless uh, factory workers and soldiers, and, and let the free market handle education, let homeschooling handle education, let life experience handle education, teach people how to start their own businesses, how to enjoy the thrust and parry of economic negotiation and how to take risks and how to raise capital and how to do all of these wonderful things we're not taught how to do in government schools, raise demand for workers, that will allow them to charge more for their services, to go to the best employers and will put the bad employers out of business. doesn't solve all problems overnight, but at least you have a voluntary situation with the business and you have competition wherein people who are inefficient, people who are brutal, people who are mean, people who are predatory, people who, quote, underpay, Lord, we all feel underpaid, right? But those people will generally go out of business. And that is a long-term, multifaceted, uh, in a sense, multi-denominational solution to the problem. Handing over massive amounts of economic, political, and violent power to a small group of people called the state, and crossing your fingers has never worked throughout human history, I don't see that changing anytime soon, particularly now when handing power to the state, as we can see from China, as we can see from the increased surveillance that has occurred under the deep state, uh, under the Patriot Act and other places in the West. Now, governments have not just the power of violence, they have the power of near infinite information technology to track, monitor and control people. I do not want and will never trust a small oligarchical power hungry group of people, given the infinite power and violent capacities of the state to do anything other than end civilization as we know it. And it's too great a risk for me to take. But uh, Ben, of course, will get the last word here. And I do appreciate his time tonight.
1: All right. Thank you. I appreciate that you took the invitation to do this. I think it's been a good conversation. Uh, I want to kind of pull back and think here about the larger view of, of what we've been arguing about uh, this whole time. Uh, and, you know, remember uh, what I said in the beginning is that when I talk about capitalism, think about a system in which we have an economic division of society in between capitalists, right, people who own businesses, uh, and workers uh, who have no realistic choice uh, but uh, to uh, to go to work for someone uh, who, uh, who owns a business. Uh, and that's what I think socialism, even a very cautious, um, you know, planned version of market socialism that tries to learn some lessons from what's worked and what hasn't worked uh, in various countries in the past uh, would eliminate that division. Where Stefan wants to talk about capitalism is as uh a certain set of moral or political principles about free markets or non-aggression. And that the real question was, can we, in order to move beyond capitalism in the first sense, uh, can we violate uh, capitalism in the second sense? I think so. Uh, I have given a couple of arguments for that. Uh, One is that I think, the kind of freedom that we should care most about uh, is freedom from coer- freedom from domination, rather than freedom from coercion per se, uh, and that our best shot at freedom from domination uh, is giving everybody roughly equivalent amounts of political and economic power. Um, and of course, we shouldn't give all power to an all-powerful state and cross our fingers that people would use it well. In fact, I don't even, not only do I support all sorts of democratic and constitutional liberal limitations on the power of the state, right? We both said we oppose the Patriot Act, for example, Uh, but I'm so far from wanting to just give people power and cross my fingers that they'll use it well, that I'm not even comfortable with bosses in workplaces uh, having the kind of power that they have. Uh, over workers in the current system. So how can we address uh, that power imbalance? Uh, Stefan says that he wants to uh, help people to start their own businesses. Now, um, the charge that government schools don't give people the resource to do this is still a little odd. I've never heard of a public university that didn't have an MBA program, but put that aside. um, Sure, start your own business. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, I think that it would be better if we had a system where the default model for businesses that was incentivized was worker co-op uh, rather than a uh, traditional business. But that doesn't mean you're a terrible person uh, if you start a business that has employees. I'm not interested in that kind of uh, moralizing. I'm interested in thinking about what a more just society uh, might look like. Uh, but the problem with just telling everybody to start their own business uh, is that, and I know there have been some references to technical logical terminology being hopelessly confusing. Uh, but is that this commits what's called the composition fallacy when you say that because the individual parts of something have some property, therefore the whole thing has that property? Like if you say every atom in the Brooklyn Bridge is invisible, therefore the Brooklyn Bridge is invisible. Well, it could be that. Every individual, let's just ignore all of the barriers of entry that, you know, Stephanie was talking about, some of which we agree about, I'm sure, some of which we disagree about. Let's ignore the fact that some people uh, have, you know, are born into wealth and some to poverty. That obviously makes a difference to how easy it is uh, to get starter capital and start your own business. Even if we accepted that any individual might, by striving hard enough, start their own businesses, this can't be a solution to structural poverty, because it it doesn't follow from every, you know, any individual might have a shot at being one of the people who could do this, to it being structurally possible to have an economy where everybody owns their own business. And if you acknowledge that second point, then even if you agree that, oh, people rise in the meritocracy because they're better, have better work ethic, or better IQ, or whatever, uh, anything that we hear from the defenders of the current system, even if you accepted that, it would still be monstrously unjust. In fact, if it really was because of innate abilities, it would be even more monstrously unjust to have a society where you're going to have this power imbalance because most people are not going to be business owners because if that were the case, there would be nobody left to grow to grow the food uh, that, uh, that feeds us all. All right, last point about uh, And I know that, you know, he said he's bored by it, uh, but I really feel like this is worth going back to about the discussion about immigration because we heard a few things to try to paper over the obvious contradiction between Stefan's free market libertarianism Uh, and the idea that it's legitimate for the state to get in the way of free market interactions between landlords or employers who want to employ people or give them housing uh, who are currently in other countries, and those people accepted those offers. Uh, One was this business about how people are going to vote for left-wing politicians or accept welfare services. And if the mere fact that that members of some group are more likely to do these things is a good enough reason to restrict their rights, then there's no particular reason, unless you hold the premise that the state has a moral right to do whatever they want with the country they own, which would give you the opposite of anarcho-capitalism, unless you accept that premise. Uh, Those two things can't fit together. And I was even more surprised when he started using these consequentialist arguments about uh, how third world nations are disadvantaged because the best and the brightest leave, so that's a good enough reason to violently stop them from, uh, from coming here, or about how third world immigration is supposedly bad uh, for um, you know, African-Americans in terms of economic consequences, because if Stefan really thought that it was okay to violate property rights anytime time violated property rights had good consequences For black people in America or for people in the developing world, then he and I would disagree on far less than we actually do.
0: Well, thanks. I appreciate the conversation and thanks everyone for watching tonight and I look forward to the comments. Take care. All right. Thank you.